Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the round and round, the roundtable edition. I'm your host and journal editorial writer, Sarah O'Donnell. It's January 30th, 2014, and I am very pleased to be joined in the newsroom studio today by a quartet of colleagues. From the reporting side, we've got Sheila Pratt. Hello. And Karen Cleese. Hi there. And from the op-ed side, Graham Thompson. Hello. And Paula Simons are with us. We've beefed up the panel this week. I'm sorry, Paula, I didn't even <laughs> let you say hello. <laughs> You've been just dying to cut me off all week, no, all month, all year. Not at all. <laughs> Hi, Paula. Hello, Sarah. We've beefed up the panel this week because we needed the varied expertise of Karen and Sheila on our two main topics. The Child Welfare Roundtable, organized by Alberta's Human Services Ministry, and an inquiry into the heavy oil field in the Peace River area undertaken by the Alberta Energy Regulator. Good stuff from the gallery. We'll conclude our show, as always. Let's start with the Child Welfare Roundtable, because that's where 80% of us were for at least a portion of Wednesday. This was a two-day brainstorming session, I guess we'll call it for lack of a better word, to discuss a series of thorny questions about what happens when children die in government care and how that gets reported. Karen, can you start by explaining for us why the provincial government organized this event? And, and let's start with the non-cynical answer, please, if you could. Back in November, the Edmonton Journal and the Calgary Herald published a six-part investigative series that revealed that 145 children had died in care, triple the number that the government had previously reported. Uh, That series rolled out over six days, dominated the legislative session, and prompted then-Human Services Minister Dave Hancock to to call this roundtable, which they put together very quickly. Uh, Two of the major issues that we raised in our series were the uh, tangled child death review system here in Alberta, as well as the draconian publication ban that prevents families and news media from sharing the stories uh, of, or from naming and sharing the photographs of people who die in care. So uh, those were the major focuses of the roundtable, and we we heard from roughly, I'd say, 80 experts over the course of the two days. What specifically was the new Human Services Minister, Manmeet Bular, hoping to get from this group of people, and did he get the answers he was looking for? Well, yes and no. I think what Minister Bular wanted was a twofold thing. He wanted some some advice, some direction on how to change the death review system, the way that our medical examiner, our child and youth advocate, our quality assurance council conduct investigations into the deaths of children, whether in care or not in care, and whether there's a way to streamline and beef up that uh, investigation and reporting system. He also wanted to have a full discussion about the way information about children who've been receiving care from children's services is reported, not just in the media, but to the family members themselves. I think he got a lot of answers. I think he got a lot of interesting input. What he didn't get, and what he was quite rueful about when the uh, meetings concluded uh, on Wednesday evening, was that he got a lot of conflicting 
information. So I think, you know, he, he joked at one point that he was hoping that they would just sort of give him all his points and he could go make them into a law. What they gave him was a lot to think about. Well, if I can in- just interject briefly there, I think he did get what he was looking for in terms of the child death review process. I think that there was some fairly strong consensus that that process should be um, consistent and that data should be collected in consistent ways so that we can look at trends. It, he didn't get everything he was looking for, Paul is right, but I think he, he got some of the way there with the child death review process. The publication ban, though, there were just way too many diverging opinions in that room yesterday, and, and it will be interesting, I think, as a political observer to see how he sorts through that and what he ends up doing. The other thing that I think was really intriguing was the degree to which the experts themselves had never had this conversation. And somebody said to me cynically in the bathroom, you know, couldn't they have all gone for coffee and at least got their story straight before they got up on the dais? But I actually think for me, as a journalist who's covered this, these questions for years and, and who watched Karen's series with really close attention, it was fascinating to see that the experts themselves don't have lines of communication and don't actually understand what each office does. Them, I, I said on the blog at one point that it's a bit like a trip to the off-leash as the dogs mark their territory and, and guard their turf to see what extent the people who are charged with investigating the deaths of vulnerable people in our society don't talk to each other and don't understand each other's governing legislation. It really has been the human service ministers, first Dave Hancock, uh, now Minister Bular, who have been taking the lead on this issue in the last two months. But Premier Redford did make an appearance at the roundtable Wednesday morning. And Graham, can you tell us what she had to say and what you thought of her message? Yeah, she did the opening address, kind of a surprise. We were given that one day's notice she was actually going to show up. She wasn't actually on the official agenda. And she did a, a, a speech that she had actually literally written herself on line paper, torn apparently out of a notebook. And uh, she presented this speech, a very impassioned speech about improving the system. And she and she said, you know, as a mother, this is not, I'm not just saying this. Uh, I really mean that we're going to make some substantive changes to it. It was a very good speech, very impassioned. Uh, it was like the Redford, I said in my column today, the Redford from the 2012 election, actually doing things differently, being more open and more accountable, and, and you know, elect me and I'll do things differently. The problem is, um, within minutes, she went across the hall, we did a news conference and fell back into the typical Redford we've seen in the last, uh, since the election, that is very bureaucratic, uh, irritated with the media times, to me at times condescending. We are irritating, though, sometimes. Let's face it. Well, it's of course, at the very beginning, our questions were all about uh, her trip to, um, you know, to Europe and India and and um, money she's spending on trips like this. It wasn't to do with the, um, the roundtable. But having said that, she didn't really answer the questions. And so I thought that... Um, you did see the old Redford, the one that actually people voted for last time around, um, and the question is, can she bring that back in time for the next election? But of course, people have been writing to me and uh, on Twitter as well, a very good question. They're saying the question here is not, uh, can she refine that passion, but will Albertans believe her next time around as well, when she says, look, I really am a passionate person and believe in changing things. Well, a couple of points on that, Graham. The people she was talking to yesterday at that roundtable were the people in that, uh, what, what did we call it, the um, coalition of mm-hmm. sort of progressive voters. And, and so it was interesting from a political perspective that she pulled out that that version of herself that we were so familiar with during the election. Uh, I was chagrined, to say the least, when, when during the uh, the press conference afterwards, she reverted to type, absolutely very annoyed with us. And uh, and we did not get answers to our questions, which we've come to expect, I guess. But Paula and uh, one of the CBC reporters asked her point blank, you know, why the secrecy? Why right. did we only know about these 56 deaths? And then, uh, you know, we later find out that there were 741. Why the secrecy? And she said, 
uh, I wish I had the quote with me here. I put it in my story. Um, that that wasn't up to the it government. Wasn't fault, yeah. I was I was stunned when she said that. I thought, no, really? it, it was so disappointing because it was a terrific speech. I mean, I don't I, I don't think I can stress this strongly enough. It's the best speech I've ever heard her give. She was warm. She was human. She was funny. And then when I asked her, you know, why was it that? That, that it took this long to get this information. And she said, well, you know, Minister Boulard, he, you know, nobody made him do this. Well, in <laughs> fact, in fact, the pr- Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner ordered the government to turn over this information in June of 2013. Uh, and she said, you know, nobody, nobody made the minister release that data to you in January. Well, yeah, in fact, an office of the legislature ordered the government to do it. So, you know, the disconnect between the brilliant on-point messaging that she gave to the room where she talked about the importance of the party being the progressive conservative party, that it was time to look past ideology and not be all caught up in this right-wing rhetoric about individual rights. We had to think about the community. Uh, Yeah, I I would like her back, please. I will say that I think that they could have done I'm not trying to defend the government, but they could have, (laughs) and yet I find myself, they could have done what they did before, right? Which was leave us to crunch all those numbers, which Karen was in the process of doing, looking through the documents. They did give us some information and including documents that we didn't have, right? There's still 189 children who, who appear in their number who we don't have records for. So... There's. They could have approached it the same way they had before, and this time, once they knew the information was going to be out there, they they did some data crunching on their own. So I'll jump in and just say that I think it's patently obvious that the Journal Herald series forced the government to release these numbers, uh, and I think it's really disingenuous for the premier or the minister to suggest otherwise that this was somehow an act of great transparency by the government. We fought for four years. We got. Uh, we didn't even get all of the records, and that'll be the subject of a forthcoming story. But uh, I think readers will be su- or listeners here will be surprised to learn that the government, even after that four and a half year battle, still found a way to keep 189 of those deaths secret from the public. And I think it's astonishing that Redford would stand up and say that it wasn't the government that was keeping it secret. You're right. I can't. I can't but, defend but, it but, any but, further. But, we, we, I simply. I simply just thought I'd play devil's advocate, but I, I've crumbled. Nice I know, there, there was there was this really peculiar moment when when Karen and I and some other media were chatting with uh, one of the spokespeople for the department and I was talking about the restrictions of the publication ban with uh, Minister Bular and and with his staff and one of the staffers said well you know but we can't do anything about that that's the law and I thought really did it come down from Moses on stone (laughs) tablets you wrote the law you can change the law to look at me and say well you can't do anything about it because that's the law it was just it was I thought it was very telling because it it shows the degree of disconnect. It's almost as though they've been in power for so long that they've forgotten that they made these laws in the first place. Well, it's been 43 years this year. In September. That's right. The longest Um, serving government in Canadian history. And what will also, yeah, continuous majority government at that. And one other thing before we get off this topic is that we'll have to see what that government actually does now. Mm -hmm. I think, and Paula and I, for all of us, are are skeptics in this room that we've been through so many round tables and different topics and, you know, white papers and all that. It, will they actually do something different this time? You're preempting my my question, which was, well, what happens now? I mean, so you think maybe nothing 
Paula? Well, technically what happens now is that they write a report of this meeting. Good luck to them trying to pull all those divergent answers together. They, they show the report to the public. They get public input in response to the report, and then they come back with a, a revision of how they're going to do death reviews and potentially amendments to the legislation around publication bans. I think the publication ban legislation is going to be softened, but I don't think it's going to be lifted to the degree that I would like to see. For what it's worth, I've had some long conversations with uh, Minister Bular on this topic, and it's, you know, I'm about as cynical as they come these days, but uh, I do feel that his intentions are to overhaul the child death review system, and he certainly has made it abundantly clear that he has serious concerns with the current publication ban. I remain hopeful. I want to end on Karen's hopeful note. And as we have been focused on the human services portfolio, Sheila has been in Northern Alberta at another intense hearing, this one related to a heavy oil project operated by Baytex Energy. So Sheila, this is the first inquiry of its kind under the new Alberta Energy Regulator. Am I right in saying that? That's correct. Can you tell us why the regulator ordered this hearing? Well, actually, it goes back to Ken Hughes, who was energy minister, previous energy minister, and he actually went up to this area around Peace River, and for two years, there's been quite a controversy from this group of landowners. Several families have been forced to leave because of health impacts of the emissions, and he went up there and said, yes, it's different up here. We have to do something about it, and he pointed to the regulator, and under the new system, the minister can ask the regulator to do something, so they decided, well, we'll have a public inquiry, and uh, it was very, it was held Brad McManus was the chair he's a longtime regulator veteran and uh, um, lots of landowners Baytex the board actually hired experts to provide independent advice so it was quite thorough so what were the landowners complaining about specifically and what did the company have to say about that okay what's different up there is the way you produce bitumen and it's basically in big storage tanks sitting on elevated storage tanks and then they cook heat the bitumen on the surface it's the only place in the only process where you do that usually in trying to get the bitumen out of the ground you either send heat down or you dig it out in a mine and then you take it to a production plant and you heat it there and keep the vapors inside these are little tanks in farmers backyards sort of and they heat it and most of the operators up there collect those hydrocarbon vapors Baytex was not collecting them on all of their 86 tanks, and the fumes that residents argued were flowing into their uh, houses, making them ill, and they did have quite a list of health effects. In fact, when, when we were up there, the night before the hearing began uh, this week, there'd been a gassing, as they call it, and several of them came in looking quite ill because they'd had fumes all night. So it's, it's just a very difficult situation. It's a new production system, and there's a cert- serious gap in the regulations to deal with the emissions from this production. So what did the company have to say for itself at this hearing? I mean, did they put up a defense? Did they try to say things are just fine how they are? Thank you very much. No need. Nothing to see here. Or were they were they offering some solutions? Well, Baytex uh, notes in this tiny field with the five landowners, it's only Baytex. So there was a certain amount of focus on them. There are, of course, five other operators up there that also have some odor problems. But Baytex said, well, that they... 
They did in the end say we have miscommunicated with the landowners. Um, the landowners had wanted tank top recovery units to keep these emissions inside for two years. Baytex uh, had not been doing it. And at the last day of the hearing yesterday, they said, oh, well, it was our miscommunication. We really meant to do it. And we're going to move ahead and put those vapors, <laughs> vapor capture equipment on. So this is the first time that the Alberta Energy Regulator has used its public inquiry for a special case. How important is it that they're doing that? Well, it may be a test case. We'll see what actually happens now. You know, there's a history in Alberta where they just rubber stamp everything. To me, the analogy is it's a wild west. The analogy I would use is in the U.S. when they were expanding like 200 years ago into the west, settlers arrived first. Then the law came later. So there's a wild west. In Canada, we, we sent the Northwest Mounted Police out west. Then we got the law in place. Then settlers arrived. The oil sands is the wild west. American style. American style. So they're actually letting um, these things go ahead. Then they figure out later on what rules and regulations they need after the fact. This, to me, is an example of that. Yeah, up until your story, Sheila, I I mean, I grew up around the oil sands industry, but I had no idea that in the northwest part of the province, oil sands was being extracted this way. I'm used to the conventional dig, centrifuge, upgrade, or, you know, in situ. This is is real. You're absolutely right. I mean, this... We've all been focused on the oil sands around Fort McMurray. This is a totally different kind of reservoir. The stuff is much more sticky, and it's also much higher in sulfur content, which explains why the emissions are so problematic what from I the f- hydrocarbons. So it, it is a totally different thing, and we're, there's going to be more issues up there. But what I found really most fascinating from Sheila's reporting is that the big companies like Shell were actually there sort of quietly on the side of the landowners because for them, they need the social license to operate up there. Baytex, which is a much smaller, very small calorie, but they're not one of these huge multinationals. They're playing pretty fast and loose with the social license. Maybe they're not violating air quality standards, but they're being a really rotten neighbor. I was really interested to see that in one of your stories, some of the landowners seem to say that they held Premier Redford responsible. Did I read that wrong? Or can you tell yeah, me it what, wasn't, it what was, were they saying there? They're, they're very frustrated because they read as the hearing is going on that she's off traveling around the world, selling, getting more markets and saying we're an environmental leader and the world, and that's why you should buy our oil sands. Well, they actually don't feel we're an environmental leader because they're dre- breathing in these emissions, and they would like attention to that. So it's not that it's to her personally, but it's, you know, government policy is, is not keeping up. Is, is that Does that spell a problem for her, Graham, politically, if people are holding her responsible for individual individual projects well, and the goes, foul odors coming it from It goes them? back to this issue we're talking about, her doing things differently. She promised to do things differently. 2012, a different kind of premier is being elected, not a conservative, progressive conservative, not a member of the old boys network, do things differently, protect the environment, yada, yada, yada. And she's turning it to be just like the old boys network who's not really protecting the environment. When it comes to issues like the environment, we're not a world leader. Like you, It's not just the noxious uh, fumes. Right, absolutely agree. Yeah, um, the, right, I think I agree. People up yep. there, I can, I can sympathize with them, absolutely. But also just in the bigger picture, looking at the actual facts, environmental laws in this province and what they've done Historically, we are not an environmental leader at all. And and what's really fascinating to me is that the big corporations, the ones that work on the global market, they know that we have to change our standards if we're going to have markets for our product. Well, I think that's that's right. That's what I think is so fascinating from what Sheila observed up there. Shell is a bit worried about that. But let's. The other factor here is 
Redford also created a system where her government is at one more arm's length from these environmental issues because they've handed over the entire enforcement of the Environmental Protection Act or uh, Enhancement and Protection Act to the regulator as it pertains to the oil industry. So not only is she turning out to act like the old boys, but she's created this system where in Alberta environment will have less and less input into these kind of issues. Yeah, because they're streamlining everything. Uh, streamlining, it's like the federal government. They tend to streamline things to get them approved faster. The, the, you know, yeah, the so you only, go, you, you only go to one place for permits Absolutely. now. You go to the regulator, not Alberta environment. Alberta environment has very little input into this. So what's next for us from this inquiry? Well, is it done? Are we yeah, uh, there's uh, the hearings wrap up this week. There's final arguments today. Um, Baytex has, uh, you know, agreed to install the vapor recovery units that the residents want. It wants to rebuild the trust there to its credit, and the regulator will have to decide there uh, on certain things like will there be more specific regulations around hydrocarbons from these bitumen tanks? Will there be? Um, there's a request that the company shut down until these equipment's installed to prevent the odors. There are a number of things. And they obviously have to beef up compliance because clearly up there, reporting odors, the uh, regulator just sends out somebody from the company. The company says, I don't smell anything, and that's the end of it. So there's still big issues for the regulator to deal with. What's next for us is good stuff from the gallery, and which is our recommendations for a good political read or perhaps a listening or viewing experience. Graham, we missed you last yeah, week, sure so you. let's start with you. Um, I was going to say uh, the nature of things is on tonight. Um, David Suzuki, um, tonight's Thursday. It's on the weekend as well. Tonight's um, it's called Trek of the Titans. It's about leatherback turtles. I don't mean to promote that in particular, just promoting CBC nature of things and the CBC documentaries in general. Uh, I'm a big fan of CBC. Very few um, Canadian-owned broadcasters actually do original work like this. It's a bit like what Karen did. The analogy I'm drawing here to to, to pat her on the back in the journal and the Herald is the work that Karen did on the children in care. Very few media are doing this kind of investigation now. And so it's a plug for the CBC. Karen, since we've <laughs> talked about you, what's your recommendation? The uh, New Yorker yesterday published a great piece by Tim Wu. It's based on a, a Microsoft study about who it's called, Doesn't Anyone Read the News? And it turns out that actually nobody reads the news. <laughs> and, uh, that's and, very depressing. I know. That's why I'm sharing it here. So, so the study found that 4% of people are active uh, news consumers. And when they say active news consumers, uh, this is astonishing to me, uh, that it's 10 New substantive news articles and two opinion pieces in every three months. Uh, so the story is focused tightly on, on political news, and and it's a really great read for anybody who either consumes political news or or writes it like us. So and we would just like and to thank that? all of you who are listening. I won't read Four percent. <laughs> we love I'm not read you. It. And, and sorry, what's that called again? It's called the. It's in the New Yorker, and it's written by Tim Wu, and it's called "Doesn't Anyone Read the News." Okay, Sheila, how about you? Do you have a good stuff that might be a little less depressing for journalists? I do, absolutely. I found a wonderful nugget in a, uh, our own newspapers when I came back from Peace River for uh, Albertans, which a story called um, uh, that identifies Jerry Prady, the man who runs the new Alberta Energy Regulator, whose people I was listening to for the last two weeks, was also hired by the Harper government to advise it on um, the closings of the experimental lakes, which was a big issue, as you know, a few months ago. And 
Who knows how and why he got appointed. He must certainly be a go-to man for the Harper government because there he is in this story. Scientists question why Ottawa hired top oil lobbyists to advise government lakes facility studying pollution. Okay, long headline, but it's in the National Post. That's right. Okay, thanks, Sheila. I'm going to jump in next. My Good Stuff recommendation is from Politico, the website, and this is their letter from Georgia this week. It's by Rebecca Burns. And it's about the snowmageddon that they've been facing in the South. It's called The Day We Lost Atlanta, How Two Lousy Inches of Snow Paralyzed a Metro Area of Six Million People. Um, The reason I read this is because I know we've all found it very funny to see the snow disaster that has completely shut down the cities. But having lived in the South, snow days are actually no laughing matter down there. There is just no infrastructure to deal with that. And Rebecca Burns, who is the uh, deputy editor of Atlanta Magazine and a journalism professor at Emory University, she's written very thoughtfully about how what this shows there is that in their in their urban sprawl, they they are just not equipped to deal with a disaster like this for them down there. And it got me thinking a little bit about you know Edmonton and our regional growth, and we we're equipped to deal with snow, but there's a there's been a lot of problems about coordinating jurisdictions down there um, with all the different little communities. Who plows this road? Who plows that road? And you've had people having babies on the highways, people stuck for twenty hours. And I mean, she talks about how people have joked that it looks like The Walking Dead, but that it's actually no joking matter. It has it has really been a disaster. It was a good read. It's not too long. Not like the twenty. 20-minute press conference I recommended last week. It's called The Day We Lost Atlanta by Rebecca Burns. Paula, let's conclude with you. What's your good stuff? Well, my good stuff is something I have not yet read because it's going to come out on Friday. And it is, uh, this is not a, this is not a cheery thing at all. This is going to be the report of the public inquiry into the death of a little girl from Manitoba named Phoenix Sinclair. Phoenix Sinclair was five years old. She had been brutally abused most of her young life by her mother and her stepfather. The parents uh, eventually killed her, buried her body in a shallow grave, and then continued to collect the welfare support checks for her for eight months until someone finally tipped off childcare workers that maybe there was something a little bit wrong. That happened almost 10 years ago, and now finally, uh, after a long public fatality inquiry, we'll get the report into what went wrong. And the reason I want to recommend this is pretty simple. I've just said her name, Phoenix Sinclair. She was five years old. She was beautiful. If she died in Alberta, it would be against the law. I could face up to six months in jail just for saying her name. In Manitoba, People were able to print her name and print her photograph, and I dare say there's almost no one in Winnipeg that you could stop on the street, consumer of news or not, who wouldn't know her story. And here in Alberta, we can never tell these stories, not this way. Right. And so, It would be initials. Yeah, it would be initials. She would be P, you know, P.S., and that's what it would be, like a P.S., a postscript. And so I wish for all our children much happier lives than that of Phoenix Sinclair. But when things do go wrong, I wish for them the dignity of an identity and a name. Thank you for all those recommendations. That's it for this week. We'll wrap it up from the Press Gallery. You can find us online at edmontonjournal.com. All our previous episodes are uh, are logged there or on iTunes. The Press Gallery, you can find it. We've got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thepressgallery keep up those likes it it helps us in many ways and recommend us to a friend we'll be back next week in the press gallery thanks so much for listening 